You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. We do praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit, Holy Triune God of joyful love. We invite you now into this time as we turn to the Word of God that bears witness to Jesus. Would you please show us Jesus today that we might not just know him, but encounter him and experience him and the joy that he wants to give. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, church family. Great to see you. Welcome. Um, I'm Corey. I'm the senior pastor here at 3rd. Uh, especially if you're visiting today, I want to welcome you. We our, our mission statement is that we're called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. And That's why we love to partner with partners like Urban Hope, um, because we believe that God is in the business of renewing everything, not just people and souls, um, but also communities and also cities, and that God has a vision that he is bringing his kingdom of shalom that the choir sang about earlier, this renewing kingdom of shalom into the places that are broken in our world that he might make them new, and we get to be a part of that. Uh, We are in a sermon series right now that we're calling Come and See. This is a, a... look at, at the Gospel of John. So we're going to be marching through the Gospel of John all the way through Easter. Um, come and see is language that is used throughout the Gospel of John, and it's really the language of invitation. And so throughout this series, week by week, we're going to be looking at, uh, first of all, how God is inviting each of us into a deeper experience of his grace and his love through Jesus. But we're also going to see the way that God is calling us to be people of invitation, that we would be those who extend that same invitation to others that God has given to us. So um, today, we, uh, we're turning to John chapter 2. We've been in John 1 for two weeks. We've seen that uh, Jesus has, has established his, his crew, his, his disciples. He's got five or six people that he's gathered around him. And now we're going to begin seeing in chapter 2 the beginning of Jesus's ministry. So if you want to open your Bibles or an app or just listen, um, we're going to read John chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 1 through 11. So let's hear God's word. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to Jesus, They have no more wine. Dear woman, Jesus replied, Why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. His mother then said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. He did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the wine knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. This, the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee, he thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. So I know this is a familiar story. I mean, even if you've never been in church in your life, you've probably made a joke or heard something about changing water to wine. Um, And yet, if you really think about it, 
and I really want us to think about it today, it is truly bizarre that this is the miracle that Jesus kicks off his career with, right? Um, there was a Duke University professor of literature, pretty famous guy who's now gone. His name is Reynolds Price. And he noted in a book that he wrote about the Gospels that if you are inventing a, bi a biography of Jesus Christ, like if you were just making up stories to show that Jesus is a person of great power and great glory, who would have ever invented as the first inaugural miracle of his career a miraculous solution to a social embarrassment at a wedding, right? I mean, sure, maybe a big healing, maybe, you know, raising somebody from the dead or something like that. But Jesus's very first public miracle is bringing his tremendous divine power to rescue a catering disaster. It's just weird, right? And so you got to ask, why? Why is this here? And I think, first of all, it's here because it's true, right? Nobody would make this up. This actually happened. This really was the first miracle of Jesus's career. And if that's the case, then why? What's going on here? What is this saying about Jesus? What's he saying about himself? What does this say about what Jesus is offering to the world? That's a super important question, one that we want to answer today. And what I want to suggest to you is that this is a story about joy. It's a story about joy that Jesus is inviting us into. Jesus is saying, come and see. And the invitation that he's offering you today is an invitation into joy, to know a deep, lasting, filled up to the brim joy that he has died and risen to give each and every one of us. That's what's being offered. Okay. So let's look at this today. Let's look at first, just ask a few questions about this story. First, what is Jesus offering? Second, how is he offering it? And third, how do we receive it? Right. So first, what is it that Jesus is offering here? Well, let's look at the story. So Jesus, his mother, and Jesus' new best friends, these disciples, are invited to a wedding at Cana. Now, Cana is about five miles away from Galilee, so they, they probably walked there. It was probably a half a day's walk. And um, it's a big wedding. Who's, raise your hand if you've ever been to like a really, really big party that was a wedding. Anybody, most of you have been here. Most of you here have been to a wedding like that. Well, I guarantee you, that you have never been to a wedding like an ancient wedding. Because in traditional cultures like this ancient Jewish culture, weddings were massive and they lasted for days. Sometimes they lasted for up to a week and it was constant partying and celebrating and drinking and just a whole lot of fun, basically a week-long party to celebrate this new couple. So the first thing that's worth noting is that Jesus was invited to the wedding, right? which is pretty interesting. I, there is no record of John the Baptist ever being invited to a wedding. I mean, who wants that guy, you know, bringing his locusts to your, you know, wedding, wedding reception? So, you know, immediately we learn something about Jesus, that he is not some dour-faced religious prude, that he is actually somebody that people wanted at their party, that he's a guy who knows how to have a good time. And so Jesus and his friends are at this party, and the wine runs out. Now, that may not sound like a really big deal to you, but I want you to know that in the ancient world, it was, it was actually a disaster. Um, it was a responsibility of the groom's family to supply everything that was needed for the celebration. And in a, in a very um, honor-shame culture, like, like in the ancient world, running out of wine could be a massive social embarrassment that could put a mark on the couple for, for many years. In fact, I read in one commentary that it could lay the groom open to a lawsuit from the aggrieved parents of the bride. So, so this is like a really big deal. And so Jesus finds out about the situation. He finds out they've run out of wine. And so he tells the servants to take six stone jars that were there for religious Jewish purification rites because everything was kosher. 
Um, and he tells them to fill it with water, fill them with water. So they fill them to the brim, and then he says, take some water out, bring it to the master of the banquet, basically like the host master, who at this point did not even realize that there was a major disaster on his hands. And so he tastes it. He's like, holy cow. This is amazing. Why did you save the very best wine for the very end? The end. That's it. That's the whole story, right? <laughs> right? That's, that's the story. And you're just kind of like, this is it. Jesus makes 150 gallons of fantastic, basically 700 bottles of the finest French vintage Bordeaux. You know, Jesus makes this at, after people had already been drinking for days. What in the world is going on here? Is Jesus just testing out his powers? Is he getting warmed up, right? Is, he, is, this, a bit, is this like a fancy party trick? What is Jesus doing? Well, the big clue is at the very end. Because in verse 11, John, the, the narrator, says this. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. John um, has, there's seven major miracles that John records in the book of John. Seven is that important biblical number. And each of the seven he calls signs. And the reason they're signs is because they are pointing to something, right? Signs point to something. If you're driving to Richmond and you come and there's that big sign that says Richmond, Virginia, you don't stop at the sign and say, great, we made it right here. Let's hang out at the sign. You don't, the sign is not the destination. The sign is pointing to something else. It's pointing to to, to the thing that the sign is all about. And so these signs, these miracles, are never meant to be sort of raw acts of power that you marvel over. They're meant to point to something that tells you something significant about the person of Jesus. And so what is it that this is telling us about the glory of Jesus? What is this telling us about who he is and what he came to do? Well, if you want a clue to all that, um, you gotta think about the whole story of the Bible, okay? In the beginning, um, God makes a world of shalom, which means comprehensive well-being. It's a life of joy. It's a, it's a world without pain. It's a world without death. It's a world without sorrow. It's a world without suffering. That's the world that God made, and that's the world that God wants us humans to experience. But of course, that's not the world we have because human rebellion, human sin brings untold suffering into the world. And so while we still, I think all of us experience measures of joy and happiness from time to time, we all know that much of the human experience is marked by terrible suffering and pain and misery. But there's this great promise throughout the Bible, there's a promise throughout the scriptures that God is gonna do something about that, that God cares about a world in pain and that he's gonna do something to bring the original shalom, the original joy, the original well-being back into the world again. And so there's this great promise throughout the scriptures that one day God will come in the person of this Messiah and he will restore to a suffering world the joy that God wants for all creation. And here's what's interesting, guys, is that the symbol that is used time and time again, as a sign of that joy is, guess what? Wine. So check out some of these Old Testament prophecies. So Joel uh, chapter three says this. He says, in that day, I'm having a hard time reading that. In, uh, uh, in, in that day, the mountains shall drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk and all the ravines of Judah will flow with water. Um, Amos nine says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, and the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and all the hills shall flow with it. And this is my favorite one, Isaiah 25. It says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will prepare a rich, a feast of rich food for all peoples. 
a feast of well-aged wine, the best of meats, and what? The finest of wines. And so for hundreds of years, God's people were on the lookout for the great wine. They were on the lookout for the day when God would come to rescue, when God's kingdom would break out onto creation and the Messiah would come back and bring that finest wine to the world, restore joy to the suffering earth again. And so jumping back into the story, do you see what's happening here? Do you see that this is so much more than a party trick? This is proclaiming that the true Messiah, the the master of ceremonies, the Lord of the feast, the master of the banquet, the bringer of the wine the world has been waiting for, that he has come that joy that you long for, that always feels out of reach, the happiness you want, the delight you crave, the end of sorrow, the end of pain, the end of sadness, that in this person, joy is breaking out on the world, that Jesus is bringing back the party to a sad creation. Is that the picture that you have of Jesus? I've seen so many paintings of Jesus, and he's never smiling. I don't know why Christians feel like they have to paint him so severe. And people don't like Christianity for a lot of reasons, but one of them is this notion that Christians are religious prudes who want to spoil everybody's fun, right? If those of you who are old enough to remember, you remember um, Dana Carvey's character, the, uh, the church lady on SNL, right, who just kind of like always looks like she's sucking a lemon and looks down on every person with this like holier-than-thou superiority complex, right? That's kind of the way that a lot of people think about what Christianity is, that it's like a just say no religion, right? Just stay out of trouble and keep your nose clean and do the right thing and spend your Friday nights memorizing scripture and resisting the devil. And it's gonna make for some really lame weekends, but that's just how it is, so suck it up because that's how you get saved. That's the way a lot of people think about what the Christian faith is. But that is not the picture of Jesus here. Jesus is not only at the party, but he's at the center of the party, and he's reviving the party to untold awesomeness just when it was about to fizzle out. He is the joy bringer. He is the master of the feast. He is bringing unimaginable joy into a world of sorrow just when our wine runs out. And after so many years of waiting, after so many years the world was waiting, God brings finally, he saves the best wine for the end, and it's Jesus. He is bringing the joy back to the world. So that's what he's offering, joy. Do you believe that about Jesus? But that raises another question. How does this work, right? And some of you maybe who are not Christians might be asking, I just don't get this. Like, how does an ancient guy from the Middle East bring joy to the whole world? That doesn't make sense. Well, let's let's return to a clue in the story that I skipped over. Um, So if you look in your text to verse 3, This is kind of a weird part of the story, right? Jesus' mom is there, Mary. And she's the one who lets Jesus know that the wine has run out. Now, it's not clear what she was expecting Jesus to do. She just knows that he's a very loving and very powerful person, and she just thinks maybe he has a good idea. And Jesus says this very cryptic thing to her. He says, woman, which is an odd thing. Kids, please don't call your mom that. Um, It's like an odd thing to us, um, but actually... I do need you to know that in, in Greek and in the ancient world, it was sort of a, it was, it's, a, it's an odd thing to call your mom, but it's a, it's a term of respect, like ma'am. Um, and he says, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now, what's going on here? At first glance, it, it seems like Jesus is saying, come on, mom, you know it's not time yet for my first miracle. <laughs> but, but that's not really what's happening. Um, throughout the book of John, and we're going to see this as we study it together, 
the hour, that phrase, the hour, is a term that is used again and again for Jesus' death. Six times Jesus refers to the hour or my hour. The sixth one is in the Garden of Gethsemane in John 17, verse 1, where Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your name. Jesus is talking about his death. He's talking about his crucifixion, which makes this kind of even weirder, right? Because his mom is like, Jesus, the wine ran out. And he's like, it's not my time to die. What? <laughs> wasn't really talking about that. So what's going on here? Well, here, here's, here's what's happening, y'all. And this is just so beautiful. Jesus already knows what he's supposed to do. He already understands his mission. He, he knows that he's the joy bringer. He knows that he's the Messiah. He's the one who's come to bring the long lost joy back to a world in pain. But he also knows, even this early in his ministry, that in order for that to happen, he's going to have to die. You know, I don't know if you've ever had something heavy on your mind at a party and you feel a little distracted. It's nothing like this. Right? He knows that if he's going to bring that eternal, beautiful wine of joy, on, it's, if that wine's going to fall in the world, then the eternal judgment for sin is going to have to fall on him. And so here in this moment, he's thinking about that. You know, you know those, those jars that were there for uh, religious purification, right? The Jewish people understood that they needed to be cleansed from sin, that they needed to be purified if they were going to be in a relationship with God. But everybody knew the water was just a symbol. The water didn't take away sin. Something else was going to happen to take away the sin of the world. Did you know that in the Old Testament, wine is not only a symbol for joy, but it is also a symbol for judgment and for wrath? Jeremiah speaks of the wine of God's wrath that God's enemies will have to drink. And who will drink that cup? Who will, the cup of God's wrath for the sin of the world? And so here is Jesus. I just, I almost, I was brought to tears actually a couple times this week just reflecting on this. And I just want you to imagine this in your mind. Like Jesus is at a party. Everybody's joyful. Everybody's singing. Everybody's just gallivanting. Everybody's having a fantastic time. And he's thinking about his death. He's seeing people raise a glass and he's thinking, you know, I'm going to drink the cup of wrath. You know, people are, are dancing and he is thinking about the crucifixion that will bring ultimate purification for sin. He is thinking about all of that and nobody around him has any clue, only he knows. And yet this is the path he chooses. He says, this is what I'm here to do. The only way that he knows that he is going to drink the everlasting cup of joy with us is if he drinks the everlasting cup of wrath for us. And this is the way he chose us. When the hour comes, he prays, God, take this cup from me, but he doesn't let it pass. He doesn't let it pass. He takes it and he drinks it all the way down. So I just want you to contemplate the beauty of that for a moment. I just want you to see and experience the immensity of God's love for you, that God would desire to be with you so much that he, what, who Scripture calls the bridegroom, would do this, would, would drink the cup of wrath, that we might drink the cup of joy. Edmund Clowney, who was a professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary, said this, Jesus sat amidst all the joy, sipping the coming sorrow, so that you and I can sit amidst all this world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. And that is the invitation to you. And I hope that moves you. I hope that changes you. I hope that makes you want to accept the invitation of Jesus into joy. 
Because Jesus is inviting you to be his student, his apprentice, his disciple. And you are not being invited into a religious boot camp that kills your fun. You are being invited into joy by a person who so wants you to know the fullness of joy that he would lose everything to give that cup to you. That's how he does it. Death and resurrection. So we've seen what he wants to offer us, eternal joy. We've seen how he does it through death and resurrection. And finally, I just want to turn to you and how, how you and I receive it. Because this is the invitation to each of us. I just, you know, imagine like a, there's an, you come home from work, there's a, there's a card, an invitation sitting on the table, and it says, come and see, and you open it up, and inside it says you're invited into joy. And it's from Jesus. And this is not often the way that people think about the Christian life, but it's exactly what Jesus says in John 15. He says, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy would be complete, full, brimming over. Imagine a cup that's being poured out and it's just pouring off the sides, overflowing. That's the kind of life that Jesus wants to give you. How do you get that? How do you receive that? Well, like anything in the Christian life, it's both gift and task. It's something to just freely receive by grace and then it's something to put into practice. So let's just talk about those two things. First gift. Um, verse 11 says that after Jesus did this, the disciples put their faith in him. The word there sometimes says they believe in him. I think an even better translation is they put their trust in him. Um, believing in something is really different than putting your trust in something, right? Like we, uh, my family and I went to a, a zipline park over the summer, and there were all these like ziplines that were running 100 feet across these canyons that were like 200, 250 feet deep. And, you know, you can say, hey, do you believe that that zipline could hold up an adult human being? Yeah, I believe that. Okay, get up on that platform, put on this harness, strap yourself in, I'm going to push you across. See, that's a really different thing. It's one thing to believe. It's another thing to trust, to put your full weight in a harness, in a carabiner, in a cable, that it will actually have the strength to bear up the weight of your life. That's to trust in something, right? And so what we see the disciples do here is that they put their trust in Jesus. All these guys have been trying to live a life of relative happiness that was possible in the first century, and they are turning away from the things they thought made them happy, and they are instead choosing to put their trust in Jesus Christ instead. This is what Scripture calls repentance. Repentance doesn't, it just simply means to turn, to change your mind. Right? to turn away from one thing and to turn towards another, to change your mind about something. Ignatius of Loyola, a 16th century theologian, said that sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. Sin is unwillingness to trust that what God actually wants for me is my deepest happiness. And so to, to repent and, and to trust means to change your mind about the things you thought would make your life happy the life you thought you wanted, and instead to put your trust in Jesus Christ instead as the joy bringer. Look, y'all, everybody wants to be happy. That's one thing that all humans have in common, right? Religious, non-religious, Christian, Buddhist, capitalist, socialist. Everybody wants to be happy, and we all make decisions that we believe will lead to a happy life. That's fine. That's the way humans are wired. The problem is not that we all want to be happy. The problem is that we all look to the wrong source for a truly happy life. It's almost a trope, not worth saying, that the wealthiest people in the world are often the miserable, most miserable people in the world, and that the richest are often the poorest in soul, 
right? Here we are living in the richest country in history with more conveniences and more privileges and more comforts and more rights than any humans could ever have dreamed of, and yet we are more depressed, more anxious, more miserable than any humans who have ever lived. Why? Because the things we think will make us happy cannot bear up the weight of our souls. The cable always snaps, right? They were never meant to. Like Paul says in Romans 1, we've gotten mixed up. We worship the created things rather than the creator. We've made good things into little G gods that cannot bear up the weight of our longings. Happiness and joy, much to the, uh, I think, mis- wrong thinking of the founding fathers, happiness cannot be pursued on its own. It will always be dust in the mouth. Happiness is only achieved and captured by pursuing the source of all happiness, the source of all good. This is why G.K. Chesterton said, the man who knocks on the door of the brothel is actually knocking for God. He thinks he's looking for sex. He's actually looking for the source of all joy, right? This is why, to paraphrase Lewis, if I can find in myself a desire for happiness, which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another source of joy. And Jesus is offering that to you. He is the source. He is the well. He is the one who offers us the joy that we all long for. And that means saying to God, Lord, you are the true source. I change my mind about the things I thought I needed to make myself happy. I change my mind and I turn and put my full trust in Jesus as the one who brings joy. You you can do that. That's being offered to you. Free, free gift of faith, right? So that's the gift. But second, I also just want to say that it is a task. Um, For many of us who are Christians, joy often feels like an unfamiliar experience. I mean, some of you have won the dopamine lottery and you are an Enneagram 7 and you're like my dad who all growing up, everybody called Mr. Sunshine and it drove me crazy because I was a melancholic, depressed teenager. Um, I... I am I'm very different from my father. Um, I have a, a much more melancholic personality. Um, I tend towards discouragement. I was actually diagnosed with clinical depression at the age of 14, and I battled with that uh, my entire life. Um, I just have to be honest with you that even though I've been a Christian for 35 years, um, most of my life, joy has been a very felt like a very very out of reach possibility. And the reason I'm saying this is because I don't want anybody here to think that just because you become a Christian and you put your faith in Jesus, you suddenly become this like super uber happy person. Um, For many of us, joy feels really difficult. And for some of you who are going through something really, really hard right now, joy just feels like a joke. Um, And yet, I just want to be straight about this, that the whole New Testament seems to be saying that joy is possible right in the middle of any circumstance, regardless of your temperament that in and through the risen Jesus and the Holy Spirit who connects us to him, we have a direct line into joy that we can experience even in the midst of the most painful and difficult of circumstances. Think about that clowny quote again. He said, Jesus sat amidst all the joy, sipping the coming sorrow, so that you and I can sit amidst all the world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. It's saying, he's saying something very profound. He's saying, Jesus suffered so that we can sit right in the middle of the worst sorrow and handle it because we are tapped into the true source of joy, Right? that there's a way to live, there's a way to intentionally order your life so that you could be in the midst of some pretty deep pain 
and yet be drawing from the deep well of joy that is yours in Christ. Let me just give you an example of this. And I'll use the example of marriage because that's what this passage is about. Marriage can be a source of tremendous pain. Um, I work with a lot of couples for whom marriage is a source of tremendous pain. Um, If you're not married, it can be a source of tremendous pain because you're hurting because you're not married and you want to be. I know a lot of others of you are hurting because you are married. Um, and marriage is not what you hoped it would be. You know, you, you're kind of like, what happened? Like, I married this person that I thought was so wonderful and who would make me happy, and then one day the wine runs out. Like, the joy dried up. What do we do with that pain? Um, here's what this story is saying, I think, that there is only one true bridegroom. There's only one true lover. There's only one true source of joy. There's only one true well of wine. And the good news is you have direct access to that love. You have direct access to that source of joy, to be in the middle of disappointment and yet taste it. This gives us a resource, not to like wave your wand and make everything in your life okay, but to be okay if you are divorced, if you're single, uh, to be okay in a disappointing marriage, um, to be okay even in a good marriage because you're no longer looking to your spouse to make you happy, which is a burden that no other human being can ever bear. Um, life is really disappointing. Sorry to tell you young people that. But that is actually a really beautiful, simple truth of this story. The wine always runs out on this side of heaven. The wine always runs out. Marriage isn't what it should be. Parties aren't what they should be. Friendship isn't what they should be. Uh, Your work isn't what it should be. Churches aren't what they should be. Everything is really disappointing. And yet, you could keep on looking for the good wine. You could keep on trying to find the thing that'll give you the happiness that you crave. Or you could say, you know what? Forget the wine. I'm tapping into the winery. I'm going straight to the well, straight to the source of joy himself. And that means not only receiving as a gift, but intentionally practicing returning to that source, returning to that well, returning to that winery day after day after day. Now through Christ and the Spirit, you don't have to be a victim of your genetics. You don't have to be a victim of your painful circumstances. Through the Holy Spirit, you can take responsibility for your own joy. When Paul says, be joyful always, he doesn't mean continually feel ecstatic feelings of happiness. It's a command. He's saying, practice joy. Put into practice so that you tune your life into what is good and true and beautiful so that you remember what is most true. I am very prone to what psychiatrist Jeffrey Schwartz calls deceptive brain messaging. Um, I've trained my brain for more than 40 years to believe the worst, to catastrophize situations, and to discount the positive in every case. Literally, these patterns of thinking have been ingrained into my brain neurologically over decades. And so for me, for someone like me, it takes tremendous practice to go against the grain of your own brain wiring, right? A new habit, a habit of repentance and faith to change my mind, to believe differently, to refocus on what is good and true and beautiful, to practice joy, to dehabituate lies. How does that happen? Through practices of joy, right? Practicing gratitude every day, meditating on the truths of Scripture and memorizing it, that it comes up out of your soul. Prayer, silent prayer, contemplative prayer, sitting in the presence of God, the joy bringer, singing loud in worship with your whole body, right? Tuning the mind to the truths of Christ. Sabbath, which is essentially the practice of pleasure, the practice of joy. 
getting the help of a good friend or a good therapist or a good counselor. Does that mean suddenly I'm like Mr. Sunshine, like my dad? No, I never will be. But what I'm finding is that through practice, through the task of habituating joy, I am slowly tapping more and more into the source. I am discovering what Paul meant when he said, sorrowful but always rejoicing. I used to think that you either have good days or bad days. Someone asked me how I am, I say I'm either good or I'm not doing well. But now I see it's possible to be both at the same time. And that's actually a mark of spiritual psychosomatics maturity, is to actually hold those things together. That you can be tuned in deeply to the pain and the sorrow and the suffering of the world. And if you're not, then you're living in a cave. And at the same time, you can be a deeply grateful person, a deeply fulfilled person, a person who is joyfully content knowing that you are loved and that you can never be separated from the love of God in Christ. It's like the hot and cold faucets in the old tubs, you know, joy, pain, sorrow, rejoicing, cranked up at the same time, right? This is the truth of the human experience. And we can crank up that joy, and one day that pain will get turned down all the way, right? So I'm going to give you a practice that I want you to put into practice. Every day this week, you wake up in the morning, and you want to check your phone, you want to think about your day, you start worrying before you do any of that. Here's just a simple practice I want you to do. Put your feet on the floor and say to yourself, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day the Lord has made. I didn't make this day. I didn't create this day. Everything in this day is a gift given to me by God, and I will rejoice. There are reasons that I can rejoice today. And you might be going through something very, 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 very painful, and you can't think of any reasons to rejoice. And so I still want you to say it, but you could just say, I will rejoice and be glad in it somehow. Somehow. So friends, Jesus is saying to you, come and see. It's an invitation into joy. He is the Lord of joy, and he has died and risen to give us the joy we yearn for that you can experience even now before we taste the joy of the coming kingdom. The great theologian Bono said in his uh, autobiography, which is excellent, by the way, joy is the ultimate act of defiance. Joy is the ultimate punk rock spirit, right? To look out on a world of untold suffering and pain and to look into your own soul and the pain that is there and to choose joy, knowing that the Lord of joy has risen from the dead and that he is about to make all things new. Thanks be to God. Drink it. Taste it. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much that Jesus is the Lord of joy. He's the Lord of the wine. And I pray that, especially for people here that are having a really, really hard time tasting any joy today, I pray that they would have the faith to look to him and to say, I will rejoice and be glad in him. In Christ's name, amen.